The following production is part of the We Be Geeks Podcast Collective. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam, including the Tascam Mini Studio. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking. Microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. Crisis for the geek kind. Top geek officials admit they underestimated the hipster's defense capability. Geeks from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. They're doing their part. Are you? Join Weeby Geeks and the Geek Revolution and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Want to know more? Do not attempt to adjust your device. This is a Stream Freedom Audio Bulletin. It cannot be traced. It cannot be stopped. And it is the only free voice left in the Geek Revolution. Uh, welcome to another episode of Weeby Geeks. It is the Dashing Duo, Derek and myself, Mike. And we are being joined by a, a Hollywood legend, um, and that would be Joe Alves. I did pronounce that correct. Yes? That's correct. It's Alves. <clears throat> if it was Spanish, it would be Alves, but it's Portuguese, so it's Alves. Okay. Yeah, um, I, I know what people get confused. Joe... You got it. Joe has... <clears throat> worked on many Hollywood classics, such as Sugarland Express. Uh, going through your credits, I'm trying to find the big ones. Um, Escape well, from John, New York. Close encounter. And I, and I was heading. I was heading. Uh, Escape from New York, and then I was heading right yeah. into Jaws, Jaws Two, Jaws 3D. Um, so let's. Uh, which direction do you want to go? You want to go working backwards? You want to work forward? Whatever you, whatever you know, works for you. I'm just here to answer questions and tell you what I, what I can remember. Okay, well let's let's go ahead and hit the big one because it's also what you have a book that's just come out uh, talking about which I can't believe it's been forty years since Jaws forty five forty five years since Jaws has come yeah, out yeah uh, nineteen seventy five so this June it'll be forty five and the book uh, is uh, designing Joe Alves designing Jaws and Dennis Prince was the the writer and. Uh, he's written a lot of technical books uh, for Hewlett Packard, uh, and anyway, we got together uh, doing a show. I think it was in Kentucky, uh, and um, so it, it actually I think is it's pretty complete because not too many books really feature the production designer. They're they're generally the actors and the directors and writers, and this really shows you the uh, the sort of the groundwork in designing a movie. You know, right. That's very cool. Oh, yeah. So how I'm well, gonna need that. Well, let me just say this: Jaws was quite different in, in this respect uh, because it became a pretty big movie. Uh, the studio really didn't want to make it. It was just a shark picture. But Zanuck and Brown, uh, Zanuck, David Brown, are pretty powerful uh, producers, and um, they had uh, bought the book. And uh, David Brown's wife, Helen Gurley Brown, was the uh, editor of Cosmopolitan. And, and she said, you know, uh, David, this might make a pretty good movie. 
So I was working, I was a staff art director at Universal, and I had worked with them on Sugar Land Express. Now, nobody else was involved. Spielberg wasn't on the picture. Uh, I was working on something else, a television movie. And David called me and said, I'm going to send you the galley sheets to this book called Jaws. And if you could, in your spare time, do some illustrations depicting all the shark activity in the book. So I did, uh, oh, there 11 by 16 um, illustrations, charcoal drawings of sharks and stuff, and they're all in the book. Anyway, so that's how it started. And then uh, Stephen wasn't assigned to the movie, but I'd go over and talk to him because he had a cabana there, and we talked about how we would do it if we did it. So that's how it started. Very unusual. It is unusual. So from there, um, you're doing the charcoal drawings. How did you get then uh, put on to do the rest of production? Okay. Uh, you're a production designer, right? Yeah, but here's, here's, here's what happened. is uh, When I finished the drawings, uh, and they, it, it, this was the studio system uh, where you had department heads of every department, art department, camera, special effects, editing, and uh, Marshall Green was the head of production. He was the guy in the top tower. And uh, so Marshall decided to have a meeting. And at that time, they sort of got Stephen interested because I kept telling Stephen, I said, you know, uh, this would be great, you know. And he was thinking about doing a pirate movie. And they had some other director uh, lined up, but uh, he kept calling it a, a whale and not a shark. And they got rid of him. Anyway, we had a meeting. And uh, it, with all the department heads and Stephen and the two producers. And I went through page by page, and then the shark does this, and then the shark does that. Now, Stephen and I said, if we do this movie and we're going to make a shark, and we don't want to do it in the backlot lake against a phony backdrop. We're going to do it in the real ocean, a full-size shark, you know, like 25 feet in the real ocean. So this is what I was selling. And I did my whole big spiel, and uh, Marshall turned to the effects people and they said, well, what do you think? And uh, they said, we can't, we can't do that. It's never been done. I mean, no one's ever made a, a big animatronic thing in the real ocean. And uh, so um, if we ever did it, you know, we would probably... Uh, take a year, year and a half. He said, besides, we, we, we've got a bigger movie to do. We've got the Hindenburg. And so we're too busy. And so Marshall got a little upset. And Marshall was sort of, he lived on a boat, so he was a water guy. So he really liked this project. Anyway, he put his fist down on the deck and he said, Jaws could be a bigger movie than the Hindenburg. And everybody in the room sort of laughed because the Hindenburg was going to be the big movie and not just a little shark movie. So... Because uh, they were thinking about three, four million dollars for the whole thing. Anyway, so the meeting was over, and I started collecting my drawings. And I started to walk out, and Marshall called me back, and he said, "Can you get the shark made?" And you know, being ambitious and whatever, I said, "Yeah." He says, "Well, take it off the lot. Don't do anything here." And that was really important because that was really never done. It was always in-house. So basically, I was given the duty, the job, to find somebody to make the shark, to design the shark, to do a model, to research with ecologists, and I was set on my way to do that. 
And that's how it started. And then I started looking for people to make it. Uh, Disney said they would make it, but they wouldn't take it to the ocean. Joe Lombardi, who did uh, Godfather, said he, uh, he was busy, but it would take at least a year, year and a half. It, you know, had to be tested. And then uh, somebody talked to me about Bob Matty, who had worked at Disney, had did uh, the, the giant squid and 20,000 leagues under the sea. And I talked to Bob, and Bob was very enthusiastic. And he said, uh, "Come back in a couple. I'll come back in a couple of days. I'll show you." So he came back and he made this wire sculpture. There's a picture of it, uh, a drawing that I did in the book. And you pull a little lever, and the mark, mouth opens up, and push it back, it closes. And that's how it started. And then we had to get a collection of about six, seven guys that specialized, like Roy Abergas specialized in the the new plastics uh, for the skin and. And then electronic people and stuff, and, and uh, so that that was the uh, that was the beginning. A totally small operation, about six guys, and we made it. Uh, and the uh, Roley Harper was a caterer, and he had a big lot and uh, some uh, some warehouses we could work in, and uh, that was the beginning. And for me, then I had to work with an exeologist. I went to the San Francisco Steinhardt. Uh, um, oceanographical studies, and I met Leonard Campagno, who was quite a known ecologist, and we worked uh, on the details of the shark. I did a four-foot model, and he came down and worked with me on it, so we got the thing absolutely perfect. It looked like a white shark. And then I, I learned uh, this, how it moved. Uh, Ron and Valor Taylor, who did uh, Blue Water, White Death in Australia, talked to them. And uh, so then we started, that would probably be December of, uh, probably, uh, let's see, October, no, no, the meeting was in October, probably November, uh, December, we started the actual, you know, putting the thing together of 1973. The problem is, quickly, uh, in 1974, February, uh, the book came out. And uh, the studio was so excited, the book is going to be a huge hit, and they want to make that movie so they could show it next year. So they want to start shooting in two months. And I said, wait a minute, I need a year to make the shark. No, no, we're going to start shooting by May or April. And then Stephen postponed it a little bit to May. But that's how we had the problem with the shark. And uh, things didn't work because we had to test it. And we didn't have time to test it because they wanted to shoot it. And we... We shot everything that you could think of uh, before uh, the shark was used. But um, finally, I would go to Stephen and I'd go to Bob and I would say, Bob said, I think I got the left to right shark working. We had three sharks, left to right or right to left, where the open side we didn't see. And then we had one on a big platform, actually on a crane on a track. And that one we could sink and make it to hit the boat and things like that. So uh, that's uh, sort of how the whole thing started. Uh, anyway, any questions? So where, so with the, in all the rush to get the film started, what shortcuts did you have to take on Bruce uh, to get him working for the film? No shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. The point is, uh, here's what happened: is we made the shark here, we got it to move, and we sent it to Martha's Vineyard. So Bob had a, a bigger team, had more people, 
But what would happen is we would test it, but then the electronics, working in the ocean, the salt water, it just eats up the electronics. So we mm-hmm. would test it, it would work, and then it would stop working. So the guys were working 20, they were working seven days a week, about probably 12, 13 hours. They never had a day off for five months. And uh, so we kept seeing which shark, you know, we would get to work. And then what I did is I did about um, a couple hundred storyboards of everything with the shark in that whole third act. And they're they're also in the book and they show. So I would go to Stephen and um, I'd say, uh, Bob thinks the left to right shark is going to work. So we'd go through the storyboards and see what shots had the left to right. And then we would schedule that, and then we would have copies sent to all the departments. And we would, there was a great shot, the first shot where the shark goes by the boat, and we see how big it is. And uh, so that was uh, the very first shot used. Now, there was something, as I say, we used, we shot everything that we could before the shark. Now, some people are saying, some critics I really don't know, that we used the barrels because the shark wasn't working. And that's totally not true. Uh, If you look at my early concept sketches based on the book, there are barrels. And the idea that the barrels pop up, and when the barrel pops up, you know the shark's there. So this is more of a Hitchcockian thing. You know, he's not out there. Boom, the 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 barrel pops up. There he is, and then two, two of them pop up. So... Uh, it's very misleading to say that we used the barrel because we didn't want the uh, didn't the shark didn't work. We got every shot that was storyboarded with the shark uh, in the movie. Stephen, being the kind of director he is, really concerned, didn't want to overuse the shark. He wanted to still keep it a mystery. Three guys and a shark, and it shows up when he wants it to show up. You know. So not, not abuse it like a lot of the new ripoffs that have sharks all the time. Right. <clears throat> Which none of them are as good. That, I think that was part of what, what makes Jaws so good is you don't overuse the shark. Yeah, you know, exactly. It uh, it makes it mysterious. And when it pops up and Shire looks at it and Oh my God! We're gonna need a bigger boat. I mean, the audience really react reacts to it. Now, I'll just tell you a little side thing. When I saw the movie, the premiere it was actually a premiere. We had a showing. Uh, I was afraid people were gonna laugh because the shark made strange noises. It didn't have the John Williams music. It, it made grunt most from the the valves and rams. So when we finished the shot, the the crew would laugh, you know, <laughs> that damn silly shark, you know. So some of us were really concerned that the shark was going to be laughed at. But uh, when we saw the first screening, uh, they didn't laugh. They started screaming. And so the, shark, the studio had to re-evaluate uh, their distribution. They were going to just have it out for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, dump it. And then they saw, my God. So they extended to uh, 450 theaters, which was a lot then, because it made it the biggest summer release. And uh, then, of course, the first week, it more than paid for itself. But uh, when we came back from Martha's Vineyard, we had to do some pickup shots. 
in underwater shots in the tank at MGM. We were not heroes. We were like uh, frowned upon. We were over budget, over schedule, and we're making this dumb shark movie. So it was like, uh, not this is going to be a great movie. It, it, it was not looked on with uh, great admiration <laughs> until it opened and the, the audience started to, you know, they're still going to see it. I, I still have people I do, you know, they've seen it so many times. It's amazing. Well, lately. Oh, yeah. It, it's a classic. Yeah. Well, and, and I know, you know, if people are going to go, oh, Jaws, uh, it's it's been so overplayed. Well, that's not our fault. It's not Joe's fault. It's AMC who gets stuck on this rut of <laughs> showing the same movie every other day, twice <laughs> I mean, a day. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's that almost cheapens the film slightly, considering... You know, Jaws brings us that that concept that we've talked about with with uh, a bunch of independent filmmakers in the horror genre, um, horror and suspense genre, that they learned yeah. that lesson from Jaws, and that's less is more with the creature, oh, with absolutely. the monster. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that, and, and John Carpenter, I think, sort of learned that. I worked with John on Escape from New York, and he was very careful about, you know... Uh, the intrigue of it, you know, the, the, you know, so you didn't have the scare thing all the time. Okay. So f- with, um, with Jaws, uh, what were some of the biggest lessons you learned, uh, as a production designer for that film? Cause you know, it was the first time you were, you were a production designer. Well, that's true. But, but let me say, that's just a title. Basically, uh, our director is a production designer. Uh-huh. And uh, they didn't even use that title until William McCarran Menzies used it in Gone with the Wind. And then in the 50s, a few people used it, and it got used a little bit more in the 60s. It was sort of a prestigious thing. But basically, you're an art director. And when I did Sugar Land Express, uh, I was the art director. And now they have a production designer, and they'll have 10 or 12 uh, art directors, like on the new Star Wars. I mean, they had a good half dozen. And But... Basically, if you're the head of the visual effects and a visual look of the picture, that's the art director, and it's just a title. I probably learned more about making movies on Night Gallery, where I did uh, 48 episodes of Night Gallery, oh. and we would do two or three oh, episodes wow. an hour, and I had to come up with, because the directors had very little front time, so I had to come up not only design it, but how they would shoot it, and uh, and so many different looks. So uh, if I was to get credit for anything, I think Night Gallery would be one deserved, but they weren't giving people credit as a production designer on television. It was only on feature films. And you had to get it uh, from the producer. So when I was the art director all through Jaws, and then I was surprised that Santa gave me a production design credit and uh of course then the next picture uh close encounters uh it was a big deal that i was a production designer and then i had a art director and two set designers on jaws i had nobody i had it was me basically i had some people in the art department i used some set de- designers i had a set de- decorator i had a painter and a carpenter that's who i took to uh to martha's vineyard uh, but today it, it, the, the departments are huge, you know, right. and it just—it's a whole different ballgame. That's all. So, so we can—I'm going to ask this just to give the clarification, and 
and let our listeners understand in the behind the scenes videos where they show filming going on and people working on the shark during this filming. Yeah. You're in those shots. Yeah, I know. And, oh, and that's that amazing. Would never be. Well, the point is, there's, there's, a, there's a picture of me holding the, the, the shark's mouth up. And uh, what it was is I was sitting with Stephen and the jaw would come loose and we had a fix department. We didn't have a huge one. And I said, I could fix it. And I just ran, you know, got the boat and I went there and I just shoved it up and people took pictures of that. <laughs> so I was very active physically. In fact, I got nominated uh, for the Academy Award for special effects with Bob Maddy. Uh, and uh, so they included me in that department as a designer, you know, so it was quite different because I physically got involved. I, I did the early, uh, you know, uh, uh, sculpture, and then I had it made six times that big. So I was pretty involved in everything. Uh, of course, the art direction was the boat. I had to make a boat. I had to make uh, different, uh, you know, quint shack and things like that. So. There were those, you know, sets, you know, art department sets that I also did. But I used an awful lot of um, local help. Uh, the, the problem with Martha's Vineyard, here's what happened. Um, Stephen was working on the script. Uh, I met Peter Benchley in New York. And uh, I said, uh, where did you write this for? You know, did you have any specific place? And he said, not really. He says, there's Montauk, there's Sag Harbor, Covington. Because he lived in, uh, his parents lived on Nantucket. So he's pretty well, you know, familiar with the East Coast. So he didn't really give me any specifics. He just said, go to Nantucket and see my parents. So uh, I started and I went all through Long Island and all the tip of Long Island over to uh, across the bay there. Sag Harbor, and then I came down uh, to uh, uh, through uh, from uh, Massachusetts, and uh, so I was at the the tip of uh, of the uh, peninsula there, uh, and I took a boat to Nantucket because I asked. I said, what about these two islands? He said, Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. He had never been to Martha's Vineyard, so he didn't think it was right there. But anyway, I went down to Woods Hole, was where you get your boats. And I, I took a boat to Nantucket, but it was, it was so, water was so rough, they turned around. They didn't want to go all the way. So then I saw there was a boat to um, Martha's Vineyard. So I said, well, I better take a look at that. Well, I went to Martha's Vineyard, and uh, that was incredible. Uh, uh, Edgar Town was perfect, and uh, you know Manemsha was a good t- fisherman's town, and and then they had a beautiful bay there, with a, a 180 degree view of the ocean. So I figured, and what I needed, uh, basically, I needed uh, water with an open view, with 25 feet of depth and a very low tide. So we couldn't shoot it on the west coast because the tides are like six. Yeah, 14 feet. In Martha's Vineyard, the tide is like two feet, and the, the bay was 12, 25 feet. And that's because of this uh, barge that the shark is on, and, and you have to, you know, take it out the water, then sink it, and you want 25 feet. And you don't want a big tide because if the tide goes down, you'll see all the me- mechanisms. If it goes up too high, you won't see the shark. So anyway, Martha's Vineyard worked out perfect. 
for us, except um, Richard Zanuck was not too happy with it because of the political aspects of it. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Kennedy thing, the Chappaquiddick thing, a, yeah. a lot of rich mm-hmm. people live in Martha's Vineyard, and they didn't want a movie yeah. shot, shot there. Uh, uh, Walter Cronkite lived there, and I remember I talked to Walter later, and uh, I almost hit his boat with the shark. He told me later that he, he was to sneak out and watch the shoot. But anyway, so, but that being a problem, but then again, there's a lot of people that live there that need work. So I didn't bring, I brought a carpenter and a painter and I hired all the locals. I hired the locals to build Quint Shack and to build boats. I built, built, we had to build two orcas or one we remodeled, one we had to build a sink. And so I used locals. And so, the, and Stephen was very smart because then he hired the selectmen to put them in, in the movie, you know. So everybody got very happy about that. So it worked well. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's, that's your so neck I'll, of the woods. That's your neck of the woods, there, Derek. Yeah, is he yeah, from, from Martha's Vineyard. Uh, You're from Martha's. Uh, no, Where? but I'm from Massachusetts. But I, I've I, from Massachusetts, um, yeah. the mainland. But I've I've been to Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. And uh, when you say Martha's Vineyard's a lot of the richer people, you're not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, everybody. I mean, you know, it's uh, you know, presidents would go there. I think Obama went there and. I think uh, the Clintons, you know, a, a lot of people. But it was uh, that the, the the bad thing that happened, uh, you know, uh, with the Kennedy thing, you know, and the Chappaquiddick yeah. thing. That what people were worried about. But uh, we really didn't have much problem. We're, here's the problem we had, the Martha's Vineyard, because when I scouted that, I, it was December 17th. One of the book writers found that out. Uh, December 17th, and I scouted all the, the bays, all the beaches, and they were covered with snow. So mm-hmm. it looked great. I mean, there was just an empty ocean out there. Well, come June, July, when we're going to shoot uh, the, the ocean sequence, <laughs> uh, there's just hundreds of boats that come, you know, uh, all the yep. way across. Right. And Stephen was very determined not to show any other boats because he wanted them isolated. You know, I mean, in other words, that's why they broke the radio equipment because it was just the three guys and one shark and they didn't want a, a boat out there that, you know, uh, Brody could yell, hey, help us, help us, or, you know, because Brody was, right. he didn't want to be on the water anyway, you know. Uh, so Stephen was, I got to tell you, we waited and sometimes we send somebody out to have them redirect their boat, and some people would, would cooperate, and then some people would just be, uh, no, screw you. Uh, so <laughs> when we did Jaws 2, then I did all the the shark uh, stuff. We just did a little bit of running around town, and we did all the stuff in uh, Navarre Beach, Florida, which was just open water and uh, and no boats. So. You know, not everything's perfect when making a movie. Yeah, yeah. And very few things are. So. Well, yeah, you just, it's a difficult business. I mean, you know, you're making things that aren't real, you know, quite often. Right, yeah. So how long did filming take uh, when y'all started filming? Uh, I think we started uh, first of May, and we probably left there in September. 
middle of late uh-huh. September. So the, the walk and talk stuff went pretty quick. But then the water stuff took a long time and waiting for the boats. And people were, you know, the studio and the producers were very upset with Stephen because, you know, he wouldn't shoot. And I, I got to admire him because he's like 28 years old and he was steadfast, you know. I'm going to, I want to shoot this without seeing the shark. And, and I've got to tell you, we had an awful lot of help from Verna Fields. She she won the Academy Award for uh, editing Jaws. And later she became a vice president. And she was a huge help with Stephen uh, and with me. And, and she went over. Um, so we talked quite a bit of Jaws. Let's, let's go back briefly to uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. It, uh, this is the second. Yeah, Actually, no, this was after Jaws. So this becomes the oh, yeah. third film you're working with Spielberg on. Exactly. And uh, so here's what happened. Um, we finished Jaws. Stephen was doing some cutting. Uh, it was a winter. Uh, and uh, we wanted to go skiing. And uh, a good friend of mine, an old friend of mine, Dick Smothers, Smothers Brothers, has a condo uh-huh. in Mammoth. And uh, anyway, uh, Stephen was going to do a movie called Bingo Long and the Traveling All-Stars. And uh, it was about black baseball and the Billy D. Williams. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, so I collected a lot of old life magazines. In those days, you know, we had research departments. So, you know, now you Google everything. And I took all these magazines. We went up there and we got stuck in the snow. Uh, it was just, you know. So we would start talking about being along. And then he starts talking about this uh, this book, uh, Alan Hynek's uh, UFO scientific inquiry and about a UFOs, uh, encounters of the first kind, second kind, and third kind, and how, you know, all this stuff that he'd been working on this script. And I, I said, gosh, see, that sounds more interesting than black baseball movie. And uh, he says, yeah, but I don't have a deal. Uh, so I says, oh, all right. Well, anyway, uh, he he needed to uh, continue to edit, and so I needed to find a job uh so I had gotten a deal with, I uh, can't remember the director now, a movie called Embryo with Rock Hudson. But anyway, uh, I got a call two weeks later, three weeks later from John Badham, a director I worked with a lot on Night Gallery, and he was doing Bing Along and wanted to find one of star director. And I said, oh, well, I guess Stephen's not doing it. It's, if John's doing it. So in any case, uh, I uh, eventually Stephen contacted me. I was just finishing with, uh, with the... Uh, uh, embryo movie and uh, he says he's got a deal uh, for, with Columbia Studios and so we, we had no department we had nobody on it basically uh, I got a, I went to see the head of uh, production John Veach at Columbia and uh, he said um, everything is going to be low budget sci-fi movie or it could be done on the back lot or in the sound stages but uh, we need one location the strange looking mountain we don't know what it was just something weird so when I talked to Stephen, he didn't know yet, you know. So I, I went up to South Dakota. And I looked to, to behind the Monument Valley, and I looked to Shiprock and Chimney Rock and Shiprock and all these rocks and you know uh, arches. And then uh, I drove like three thousand miles, and then I saw uh, Devil's Tower. It just was this weird looking shape thing. I said, "Wow, this is great." And, in those days, what you did is um, you took photos and you did pan shots. It was all on film, and then you developed it and you laid it out on illustration boards. So I had all the different rocks and stuff, but both Stephen and I thought, 
Devil's Tower by far. It's it. It's going to be, you know, the the movie. So um, that's basically how it started. And uh, so it was going to be this little low-budget sci-fi movie. And so John Beach took me over to the stages 16 and 17 at Columbia and said, uh, this is your stage you could build your your sets on. And uh, I said, well, it looks a little small. He said, well, this is where they shot Camelot. My God. What happened was basically Stephen and I, as the Jaws became huge, uh, we enlarged the picture. My sets became bigger. uh, His concepts became bigger. And the studio Columbia needed a big picture. And with Jaws being a big picture, they thought, oh, maybe we got these guys that know how to make big pictures. So uh, I made a model uh, that fit in the stage, if you want, and they said, you know, the big arena, they said, what do you think? I had all the executives there. And I said, I think it's too small. They said, what do you think it should be? I said, four times that. So I made them all four times. And they said, oh, this is great. Great. Where, where are you going to shoot it? And I didn't have a clue. You know, I was in, way over my head. I just, so we had to start looking because we, we had to be all night. So we had to uh, have it inside so we could control the light and everything. So I started looking down for airplane hangers. And uh, I, I found various airplane hangers. And um, anyway, it, 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 there was one in Mobile, Alabama that had two of them, and I could extend it. So I basically extended it. It was a football field wide, and I made it a football field and a half long. So it was huge. It's the biggest set ever built at that time inside. And uh, so the, the, this little low-budget uh sci-fi movie sort of grew and and grew and uh, and that's how it uh, that's how it started oh wow wow to, to, and to think to, to think airplane but, hangers you, you, pardon? To, when, you, when you say airplane hangers i'm almost thinking the the goodyear blimp hangers up in akron ohio oh oh yeah yeah i, I did look at all those but uh what they had some of them had uh, lumber companies attached to it. Okay. So there was uh, too much noise. I can't shoot when have saws going and stuff. So, right. uh, and I looked at one uh, North Carolina, and I looked at a big, you know, blip hanger in uh, Oregon, but they were they were uh, not totally empty, and I needed something of that size. And these two hangers were World War II hangers. Uh, in Mobile, and the one I could extend, I, I extended it with a black backing that was something like uh, oh, 400 and something wow. square feet, or six, uh, six stories high of scaffolding I had to make to make the black uh, backdrop. But it, recently, um, Stephen, <laughs> I, I had an award given to me this year uh, from the Art Directors Guild, the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. It was very nice. Oh, congratulations. Anyway, my, yeah, my surprise. Was I was introduced by Greg Nicotero, who, who does The Walking Dead, and Greg uh, did the forward to this uh, Jaws book. He's a big Jaws fan collector. Anyway, my surprise was uh, Stephen had they had done, had done a video uh, and you know saying how great it was working together, blah blah blah. And he mentioned this was just a couple months ago that uh, uh, Close Encounters is still the biggest set he's ever worked on. You know. <laughs> So with all the movies he's done, that was still wow. the biggest set, you know. So th- that was something. It took like five months to make the set. It was just like a gigantic. Uh, 
14,000 square feet of uh, plastic rock, you know, fiberglass rock. Wow. And uh, it, it was difficult. And then, of course, we got uh, Doug Trumbull, uh, uh, who did Space Odyssey and some, a lot of great effects. And he came on and uh, did, the, the, you know, the aerial stuff up in the air. And, uh, anyway, it was, it, was, it was big. It was extremely, uh, what was I say? Um, we, we really extended ourselves. The problem was we were supposed to be released before Star Wars. And uh, so in, in June, but Doug's stuff got very complicated. So we didn't get released till November. So that took some of the thunder away from us. Uh, certainly, as far as the awards, we were all nominated for Academy Award and uh, Star Wars won for art direction. But I won the uh, British Academy Award against the same people uh, that were all British. Uh, uh, you know, Star Wars, Coast of Cutters won for that. Anyway, it was uh, it was quite an experience. Uh, it was it was just it was large. It was, and you know, I think it was a very thoughtful film. Uh, Stephen did it. It was not a scary movie. It was just very thought provoking. And the little boy, yeah. you know, because they did a special edition, which I really didn't like. They went inside the spaceship and they saw all the aliens and stuff. And and, mm-hmm. and then right. Stephen decided uh, to take that away. It, it was, I think Doug sort of, it, it was influenced there to show more stuff inside, but I don't think you needed it. Once Dreyfus yeah. went in and it closed and a little boy waved goodbye, that was it. What do you, what else do you need? Very true. What's one of your favorite stories uh, from shooting Close Encounters? Pardon? Favorite story from shooting the Close story? Encounters? Yeah. Favorite moment, favorite, oh, you mean, favorite event? Oh, a favorite event. Well, hmm. Caught me by that one. Um, well, it you know, it, I guess it, it, here's the thing. Uh, the oh, I I had an interesting story there. Let me say this: Francois Truffaut was a French director, and Stephen was going to use it. I said, "How are you going to get Francois Truffaut did these great movies? Uh, why is he going to become an actor in your movie?" And uh, so uh, he said, "I don't know. I talked talk to him into it." So anyway, I was a big, big fan of Truffaut's Day for Night, uh, whatever number of movies that he made, French movies. So I thought when he walked into this huge set, because George Lucas walked into the set and he goes, oh, my God, we never did anything like this in Star Wars. We just kept repainting the same sets and, and reshooting the same thing with di- different paint. He said, this is un- unbelievable. So I thought Truffaut would just flip out being a director at this huge set. He walks in, he doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything. And so Stephen comes to me and he says, uh, Joe, Melinda Dillon is, she, she, she's looking, you know, she, she, she's looking for the tower and all this stuff. And so she's staying in a little motel in, in New Mexico. So I need a little motel, you know, sort of a New Mexico flair to it. And he gave me like a couple of days. I said, what, you going to shoot that in a couple of days? Yeah. So I really quick put together this sort of uh, plaster plaster uh, room with uh, blinds and stuff. And outside there was a neon with a cactus on it. And just it was like a two-wall set. And Truffaut walks in there and he goes, oh, my God, this is a set. And he flipped out over this little TV set that I did because it was intimate. And it's, it's how he related to making movies, you know. So that was sort of a big, uh, you know, big thing for me. Okay. Now, um, from here, we, we go uh, Jaws 2. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, we were here. Uh, Jaws 2. What happened with Jaws 2, uh, 
That was interesting. I uh, I was in Mobile, Alabama, and uh, there was a cross bay in Pensacola. There's this incredible uh, beaches and stuff, and I thought. If we ever uh, ever shoot a, another Jaws, I'd like to do all the stuff out there. So I came back and I found out they were doing Jaws too, and they had a director. And uh, in any case, uh, uh, Stephen wanted me to do uh, a movie he was working on, but he didn't have a deal. And uh, anyway, so Zanuck offered me a producership. Uh, directing all the second unit. And uh, so I, I had three jobs, a production designer, a second unit director, directed 85 uh, uh, different days on that. And then they fired that director uh, after a couple of weeks. And I brought in a director that I liked uh, from Night Galleries, you know, Schwartz. And it was a difficult movie. The, the thing is, uh, with that one, it was in the studio, on the lot. They were already building the shark. And they already spent like $2 million on the shark. And, and on the first movie, we, we only spent like three two hundred fifty thousand for the whole thing. So anyway, it got more complicated because the studio now wanted to be involved in this movie because the uh, Jaws was such a big success, you know. So, and- Derek? Um, what I, all I wanted to ask was, was it any year doing the shark in the, in Jaws 2 than in the first Jaws movie? Was there what? Any what? Was it any easier handling the shark in the second movie? Oh, yeah. We, we used so much shark, and I shot so much shark with the kids on the boat and stuff like that, because the studio, they had their idea that, oh, more shark is better because the movie, you know, is about a shark. And uh, they had too much influence. Uh, so we did have to, we ended up, Verna Fields was there, we did cut a lot of shark that we we used. But the shark obviously worked uh, pretty much all the time. We had very little little problem with the shark because, you know, we had all that experience with the first film. Okay. Well, we thank you for, for joining us uh, this week. Uh, love, okay. the, love the stories. It was awesome. All right. I'm sorry we had the phone problem. Yeah. Uh, even it seems like even the internet's trying to quarantine these days. <laughs> <laughs> right, it got all messed up. All right, guys, nice talking to you. It was our pleasure. Um, Take care. Is, you too. All right, bye bye. Bye. Transmission commencing. This is Wookie Radio. Translated for the Wookie Affair. I like that Wookie. Your hosts, Ken, Derek, and Mike, bring you the latest news and commentary from the far reaches of the galaxy. Uh, hold it. Subscribe today on iTunes and Stitcher. I just assumed it's a Wookiee. Start listening today and remember. The Force will be with you always. Well, I guess we're back after that brief break. Um, oh, we had a great time with Joe. Uh, loved hearing about Jaws and a lot of insight there at the beginning. Talking about what happened with Jaws and his time as production designer. Mm, so Very interesting. Yeah. Um, so we're going to go ahead and, and do some news uh, to wrap up the week. Um, and I'm going to admit the majority of this news is going to be coming from the Pop Insider, our our friends over at the fine website, the Pop Insider, which you can catch them at thepopinsider.net, um, where you could get, get your, uh, it's a great fix for pop culture news and collectible news and uh, possibly even soon maybe a weekly recap of uh, some certain podcasts that we know of not saying but i'm saying proudly the joe rogan show no <laughs> no <laughs> but um what were you doing 30 years ago if you happen to remember 
I do, let's see, 30 years ago, I would have been 16. Yeah, uh, nothing good, I can tell you. Well, I'm trying to find out exactly when this dropped. Give me a second. You're going to like this. Uh, uh, no. Feature films. There we go. One minute. I almost have it. We're getting there. Stay March. Target. Pull up. Pull up. <laughs> See, I can be Red Six with no problem. I'm Perkins. Um, sure, sure. <laughs> for now, I am losing that weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, March 30th, 1990. What were you doing around that time, if you remember? I I have no clue. Maybe a little Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Turtles in a feature film. <laughs> no. <laughs> Can you believe 30 years ago, March 30th? Uh, wow. It wasn't that bad. Didn't well, see it in the theater. Well, Judith Hogue, the voice of April O'Neil from, I guess, the animated series. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Is hosting a um, virtual pizza party. Apparently, they're going to have um, some of the, they're, gonna, they're trying to get the original cast involved in this. Mm. And of course, the story comes from our good friend, Madeline, who I believe we had over on Wookiee Radio. Yes, Madeline was on Wookiee Radio with us because Allie was on here with us and I had um, another person on a Mighty Marvel Geeks. Weren't there two, wasn't there a Madeline and a Maddie? Yes. Maybe we had Maddie and Madeline and maybe Allie was on. Uh, okay, Madeline goes by Ma- I'm the associate editor. That, that's Maddie. She was on mm. Weeby Geeks or on uh, Wookie Radio. Anyway, if you look at the picture, you'll see, you'll remember <laughs> who it is. Uh, she's the one who brought us the story, and I, I hope Maddie's laughing at us for this because we deserve it. So uh, right now, there's not many details. <laughs> about the event at this time, but uh, they're going to do a pizza party free for fans who want to join in. However, you have to bring your own pizza. See, this is where they need to partner up with either Domino's or Papa John's, Pizza Hut, somebody to where you can get 30% off your pizza mm. for for turtles You know, on this day for this pizza party. Um, it's going to be, all we know is the date is May 23rd. Um, so just keep watching TMNT 030, uh, 03, start over, TMNT. TMNT, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, TMNT, 033090.com, and the official TMNT Movie 1990 Facebook page, which I'm liking right now. Um, apparently, May 23rd is a Saturday, and they have up on, their, on the Facebook page, 30th Anniversary Pizza Panel Party from 1 p.m. to 10 p.m. Saturday, May 23rd. Pizza panel party? Pizza panel party for nine hours. Nine hours? Nine hours. Join the original cast and crew of the 90s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie as they celebrate 30 years on World Turtle Day. Surprise guest appearances and much more. I'm interested. I am interested. But I want to know who who was... I'm trying to remember who donated or if there was any product placement for for uh for this for the pizza during that that would make it absolutely worth it i don't remember 
So, oh, well, um, Star Wars Day came and gone. Some great news came out of it, which we'll talk about on the huge, I mean, huge roundtable show on, on Friday of this week mm-hmm. when we record, because we're recording on Wednesday this week. We be geeks because of this. I'll uh, try and get everyone on. Um, did you get anything? Any purchases? I uh, did not. Nope. Well, my mother-in-law ordered for my daughter the uh, the child Hallmark ornament. We got the pre-order. Oh, yeah. We did the pre-order. Cool. Um, and it's the one with him in the pod, not the one that looks like the uh, pole, pole doll with the frog at the end of the string. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got the pod one. Right. Uh, tried to get her Ahsoka and a Porg itty-bitty itty sold out. And apparently they're releasing in June, and apparently they are not going to be having any for the stores. It was an online-only thing. Oh, wow. And she's got the other Ahsoka that they made. So I was trying to get her this one because this one's got her in the costume from the final season of Clone Wars, which we'll talk about on Friday. Um, and then, uh, but instead, my, my mom, who is wanting to get that stuff for her, uh, got a Chewbacca itty bitty for her. She ordered me. She she ordered for me uh, the Lando in yellow shirt from Solo Star Wars Story. The Donald Glover Lando itty bitty mm-hmm. and the Chewbacca Han Solo with Millennium Falcon itty bitty set. Have you seen that? Mm, I have not. I don't even know what an itty bitty is. Itty bitty. Oh, yeah, those things. <laughs> and this is a plush. The, fal- the Falcon's a plush. Yeah. It's not like the one that they did with the X-Wing where, oh, it's a cardboard ship and Luke Skywalker is inside of it. No, this is a, mm-hmm. this is a plush. So, um, and then my mom ordered for her on top of that. And oh my God, the wait. So before I tell you what we ordered, I got the email saying, hey, it's available. It's the first time it sold out quick. You may know where I'm heading with this. Maybe you don't. The listeners I know don't yet. So I got the email and it put me in the queue to wait for the launch where you got taken to the special, where it, it took you to the next website, which puts you into a waiting room. Well, we entered the waiting room and it said more than an hour. We hit about 50 minutes. Then it said, you got 58 minutes left to go. And it went from 58 to down to about 54. Then it jumped to 30. And then it's sped up a little bit more. Um, And it said, just because you're in the waiting room does not guarantee you a purchase of this item. Do you want to take a guess what the purchase of this item is? I have no idea. It's on its way. I just got confirmation it's shipping after we were told because of everything going on, it may be two to four weeks before you get it. Build-A-Bears, the child. Uh, we got it for Zoe. My mom ordered it for Zoe. <laughs> Counting down that last five minutes to see if we even got the chance to order one or if we got the... You lose. Zoe was bouncing off the walls. Five minutes, yeah. Comes back. <laughs> Three minutes. It's a child. Yeah. I looked at her. Uh-huh. It went two minutes. I'm like, 20 minutes. She goes, what? Comes back uh-huh. two minutes. Ah. So I had all that that I was experiencing uh-huh. on Monday. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Lord, help me. I need strength on this one. Uh, So we got through and we were able to order it. And all of a sudden, Wikibuy and Honey started just automatically trying to add codes. I'm like, no, let me be. I want to get this ordered. I've only got like 10, 15 minutes. But... 
if you go over to a uh, friend of the show's Facebook page, DW60, hosted by Jeff Davis, he'll talk about how he tried to order some stuff off Disney.com. Like, he was trying to get the Disney key, the, Luke's, the uh, Star Wars Day Disney key. Oh, yeah. It froze on him. And they're saying that he, oh my God, listen to his show Friday, folks, over on Sorcerer Radio, or catch it later in the weekend as the podcast. He is going to be ranting on how bad the Disney, the shop Disney website was on Monday. Um, if you've ever heard any of his, his soapboxes, those are going to look like toy toy crates for Star Wars figures compared to the soapbox he's going to be in on Friday or on on Friday. So. Um, our winner, Jeff, the Biddy Boomer contest, got his child, Biddy Boomer, on Monday, which worked out as a great Star Wars Day start for his day. I'm glad that got there, too. Um, but here's some of the, uh, some of the things that came out for Star Wars Day and a lot of people may not have known about. Um, apparently, uh, this is also from Maddie. Uh, get your baby Yoda fix with more merch worth its weight in Beskar. So, Monogram International has, uh, I guess they introduced the child piggy bank. Mm. I need to drop this in your in the chat for you, don't I? So you can see what I'm talking about. It'd probably be helpful. Okay, give me a second. This thing's cute. General Mills introduced Mandalor- mm. Mandalorian cereal. Oh, boy. <laughs> now I got a sweetened corn puffs with marshmallows. Yep. Um, then games, new GameStop exclusive Black Series figure coming. It's available for pre-order now. Cool. The Force Unleashed Shadow Stormtrooper. And I love how it's got yeah, the blue highlight lighting on him. Mm. As if he's being lit up from ambient lighting. Mm. Um, really cool looking. From NECA, who I did not realize they own Chia Pet, but the child mm. Chia Pet planter. <laughs> so you grow the Chia Pet around the child. <laughs> it um, almost makes me get a Chia Pet. We got one from a loot crate. It's a baby group chia pet. Oh, yeah. Uh, this next thing. Did you quit? What's that? Did you grow the chia pet? Not yet. I'm afraid <laughs> to. Um, this next thing I would love to get because I, I do do some sewing and I, I would love to have an embroidery machine. Hmm. But um, Star Wars computerized sewing and embroidery machine by brother. It's only 500 bucks, but it comes with uh, the, the sewing machine's got a small built in computer in it. It comes with interchangeable character plates, customize its look, and comes with 10 downloadable Star Wars embroidery designs. How cool is that? Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, from Hot Toys, a one-sixth scale Boba Fett vintage color version and a one-sixth scale Darth Vader. And this Darth Vader uh, show is from the Empire, Empire Strikes Back scene where he's talking to Luke. And it's got, besides the two hands he has now, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight more or four more pairs of hands to swap and, and a lightsaber. This wow. is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, then the child die cut vinyl. Yes, it's a real vinyl album shaped like the child. And it's it, awesome. both sides play the Mandalorian title thing. That would be one to get and just frame in a wall. So mm. that's pretty cool. Then this next topic. 
Um, this would be worth getting. Maybe had the lenses popped out and prescription lenses put in. Marvel X Tom's collection now includes sunglasses. <laughs> um, the shoes look great, by the way. But the sunglasses, there are Iron Man and Black Window, Black Window, <laughs> Black Widow themed sunglasses. <laughs> hey, you can look through a black window through it. Um, uh, so it's featuring subtle artwork and iconography, colored temple tips, and with a custom microfiber and metallic red carrying case. That's for Black Widow. Uh, the Iron Man glasses are so very Tony Stark-esque, while the Black Widow pair is perfect for any super spy looking forward to the summer. Uh, that's okay, though. Uh, the sunglasses are going to cost you 150 bucks for a Widow and 170 for Iron Man. Yikes. Yep. And then finally, all these are, are Maddie's stories. Our last story. Of no, the wasn't the. Uh, who, who did that story? Uh, somebody I talked to. Marissa. Yeah. Which you can find her on Instagram as the Toy Lady. She's the other editor in chief. Maybe I think it was her we talked to over on Marvel, on Mighty Marvel Geeks. Possibly. Maybe. I don't remember. I have to go back and look. I apologize to the gang. Uh, but this story is from Maddie. Um, Entertainment Earth just dropped 73 new Loungefly products. And that's all items for pre order. Say what? <laughs> um, all the new offerings from every style uh, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Ghostbusters, Marvel. Um, Treasure Trove. Um, perhaps some of these designs are exclusives for uh, canceled events. But let's see if they lit. Lounge Sly. Here's all this Lounge is. Star Wars Ewok Pop Crossbody Purse. Classic Iron uh, Wonder Woman Classic Icon Backpack. Vintage Wonder Woman Vintage Cosplay Mini Backpack. DC Con- uh, Superman Shield and Stars Backpack. Uh, Wonder Woman Crossbody Purse and Trifold Flap Wallet. Um, Harry Potter Marauder's Map Nylon Backpack. Uh, so far, only one mini backpack I've seen listed. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of these, but Looney Tunes Marvin the Martian line, uh, MTV Logos Nylon Backpack, uh, some other stuff. Uh, I guess they're doing some larger backpacks, nylon backpacks this go around. Hmm. They're a little larger, not 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 uh, not the minis. There is a Rugrats Reptar nylon backpack. And a couple <laughs> other. Uh, there's a Nickelodeon retro characters, Nickelodeon Rugrats backpack, a Chucky backpack. <laughs> Looks like his shirt and pants. <laughs> um, Jack Skellington. Man, there's a big resurgence with Jack Skellington. Yeah. Big research. My wife has joined that that bandwagon. See, now you could trade her Jack Skellington Biddy Boomer when we get it mm. and get your child back. I know, right? Um, <clears throat> um, he met the child Biddy Boomer, not my actual child. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, for nylon for nylon backpacks, a Hoth Adat nylon backpack. So it looks like the Hoth Scape. They had one backpack because we had it at our um, company. It's called Company D. It's the cast member store that's at the parks or at the um, certain locations outside of the parks. They had one that looked like a. Uh, it was. Have you ever seen the artwork of the? Um, 
like the visual dictionary look of an ad at where it's got panels removed so you can look inside of the ad at. Yeah. They had a backpack designed around that. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Hmm. But that type of backpack would do me no good. <laughs> um, there is a Hoth Adat indoor speeder bike, Tatooine land speeder backpack, where these are all look like the planet scenes with the um, ship on top featured. There is a Pennywise Chibi cosplay. I don't know. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984 gold mini backpack. So that's the second mini backpack. Um, yeah, big focus on the, the nylon backpack. So Rick and Morty computer chip backpack, Mickey Mouse hands, uh, Cheshire Cat, Black Widow. I'm assuming these are the full size backpacks. I would guess. Doesn't say mini. It doesn't say mini, no. Uh, quite a few passport purses as well. Um, Batman Rainbow mini Mini backpack, ex- Entertainment Earth exclusive. It's the Batman logo in uh, rainbow colors. Which, how did that even come about as a thing? Where all of a sudden Batman, I remember seeing that years ago. I don't actually know. It was Funko. Who, well, I first saw it with Funko with the different colored Batmans. Yeah. So. But I don't, I don't know the whole story behind it. I don't either. Um, get, speaking of which also came out Monday was, uh, or actually it was, came out last Friday. Prop out, uh, prop culture. You watching mm-hmm. any of that? Not yet, but I want to. Oh, we, we watched it Friday night and Saturday, or now Saturday and Sunday. We watched it. Yeah. How was oh, it? It's awesome. I want more. Cool. I want more. Did you watch the whole thing? Yeah. We watched all eight episodes. Oh, wow. <laughs> I want more. Yeah. I definitely, I'm going to check it out this weekend. Probably maybe, maybe not the all at once but yeah we we binged it we watched two we really, watched two saturday night and then we watched all rest of the six on sunday i'm not really a binge watcher i like to take it slow these are quick episodes even so i have so much to watch that i yeah. have you watched disney gallery the mandalorian no yet, no i want to we watched that one as well because that episode first episode dropped monday next episode drops friday mm. so yeah i'm looking forward to that one too yeah yeah so uh you got anything else uh nope that's all i got well then um again we want to thank joe for coming on with us uh we did have a great time despite some of the technical glitches we had uh indeed with phone lines which who would have who would have known we would have had that type of issue um <laughs> and who knows where it came from but um so yeah i guess other than that the only thing we could say is want to know more <laughs> So, um, the bad crowd you've been hanging out with is a science fiction club? This has been a Weeby Geeks production. It will test your head and your mind and your brain.